Welcome to another of our short Cood Street podcast called 10 Minutes With. And today I'm really glad to talk um, with world fantasy and Hugo Award winning novelist, graphic novelist, journalist, memoirist, and author of one of my favorite fantasy novels from last year, The Bird King, uh, G. Willow Wilson. How are you doing today, Willow? I'm doing great. It's wonderful to talk to you. Um, one of the things that uh, we were talking about just a little bit before we started off is that you're you're in Seattle, which is like it seems to me to be weeks ahead of everybody else in terms of not only getting the initial outbreaks of this virus, but but now creating a kind of uh, zone of I don't know. How would you describe that people's zone in, in, in downtown Seattle? Yeah, um, I mean, you're absolutely right. Living in Seattle does feel or has felt for the past few months like living about three weeks in the future yeah <laughs> you know both in terms of of the response to the coronavirus outbreak and and also to the uprising against police violence and um while i i don't live inside the Chaz or the chop as it is mm. now being called uh it is it is quite close to where i do live and uh you know it it really is interesting to see an experiment in living without a professional police force unfolding in real time. That's true. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. And, um, I, you know, the friends that I have who do live in the, the chop have said that since the police withdrew, it's become quite peaceful. And, uh, you know, people are posting videos of teach-ins. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's a, rapidly seemingly ever expanding food co-op that's free to anybody who happens to wander by um you know so it it it, it does feel like uh, the people who are directly involved are, are making a, a good faith effort to see okay if we were to build a society without that professional police force how would it look um so you know whether it will keep going or dissolve or disband or become something else i think uh nobody quite knows yet but it is fascinating to watch that happen it is uh, something that I suppose reminds me in, in one sense of, of what they called the People's Park in Berkeley back in the 60s and 70s. But this seems much more organized and much more and, and much less of a kind of, uh, I don't know, not it, it seems more cultural than countercultural. Does that make sense? <laughs> I think it does feel quite intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think part of that is just sort of the culture of Seattle, Uh, you know, Seattle has a long running history uh, with um, experiments in uh, anarchism, you know, by which I don't mean lighting Molotov cocktails most of the time, but, you know, anarchism in the sense of community gardens and mutual aid societies, uh, organizing sort of independently from government or from law enforcement. Um, So, you know, Seattle does have a long history with that. So I think that's part of it. Uh, you know, I think also there is possibly, and I, I don't want to necessarily put words in anybody's mouth, but I think um, the the city council and, and at least part of the city council is kind of on the same page with the ultimate goals of some of the protesters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've had a couple of uh, city council members actually go and visit the CHOP and, and speak with organizers. So I, I think among certain elements of the city government there's a less combative attitude toward the protesters and more of a collaborative attitude so it does feel very intentional it sounds it it, it sounds fascinating and you're right there's something almost science fictional about the changes that that may be happening in the next few months 
But to get to the questions we we, we get to in all these, are, are you able to get any reading done during this very <laughs> odd time we've been in? Uh, yeah, I have. Um, you know, I it's it's been really a very strange time because on the one hand, it feels like there are things happening which have never happened before. But on the other hand, in a certain sense, there's nothing new under the sun. And, you mm-hmm. know, these are issues that some of our most beloved writers, uh, you know, sort of across genres have been writing about for quite some time. Um so so yeah I you know I've been I've been reading uh, I've been doing more reading than writing I will tell you that <laughs> it is difficult to get work done I can understand that um, but I t- I will tell you I have been listening to Proust on Audible I listened to A la recherche du temps perdu because I tried to get into it as a teenager and just could not fathom it at all and I decided to sort of go back to it. Um, and, are you, and are you listen, you're not it. listening to it in French, are you? No, 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 no. Okay. Though I'd like to get there. I'd love to sort of resurrect my dormant French <laughs> and read it in the original. You can tell in translation that it really is some tremendous prose, but I'm sure it does not even touch on the original French. So maybe one day I'll get there. This is a this is a more recent translation, I'm sure, than the old Scott Moncrief one that I tried to read decades ago, and and I found not, I now find out was not a very faithful translation at all. I gather. Oh wow! Yeah, I'll have to look and see who the translator was. I thought it was very well done. Uh, you know, it was not too anachronistic. It was quite uh-huh. clear. So yeah, I'll have to go back okay. and look. Yeah. Anything else? Sure. Uh, that's that's fascinating. Listening to Proust, I never thought about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, <laughs> it's a lot to get through in your sort of like lying in bed at night and about to fall asleep. So I figured, you know, I had a better chance of getting to the end of it if I was listening to it as I was doing the dishes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've also been going back to James Baldwin, many of his essays, uh, his conversations with Margaret Mead. You know, I, I think it's amazing to see how many of the things that we think we're just now starting to confront, um, you know, really are, are issues that we grapple with trying to address generation after generation because mm-hmm. we fail. You know, it's, it's every effort that we make fails and somehow the status quo continually reasserts itself. And I remember I, somebody, uh, yeah, I remember somebody saying uh, years ago that uh, the, the, the title, The Fire Next Time, never goes out of date. no. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. I mean, it, it, it's so it, it could be written today. And, yeah. you know, in a way, it makes James Baldwin seem that much more prophetic. But at the same time, it's really sad that he was writing in this very concise, clear way about the problems and the mm-hmm. solutions a generation and a half ago. And we still haven't fixed it. No, <laughs> we yeah. still haven't fixed it. You know, it, it's it's that's what's sad about the fact that that his voice is still so relevant is the fact that we did not listen the first time around or the second time around or the third time around. Um, so, you know, I, I do hope that this time is different. I, I do hope that we are willing now to, to make some of these bigger changes. Do you have comfort food reading that you turn to under, especially uh, if you're having a hard time getting work done like I am? Uh, do, do you tend to go? A lot of people have saying they go back to murder mysteries or they'll go back to I don't know. Nobody has said horse stories yet, but I bet some horse. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Black Beauty. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, 
or, or the Black Stallion novels. I devoured those when I was a kid. Um, but no, I'll tell you what I read and that I have read like a solid at least half dozen times. Uh, and it's uh, in, in exactly maybe not quite the scenario, but scenarios like this. Um, and it's William Makepeace Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Really? That amazing sweeping. And I'll tell you why. It's it's about this group of, you know, sort of very. Uh, oh, gosh. Each in their own way, blinkered, somewhat stuck up, very much in their own routine, kind of middle class bourgeoisie, you know, people, uh-huh. young people who find themselves very unexpectedly in the middle of a war and class sort of goes into flux. Relationships go into flux. Everything becomes mutable and changeable in this moment of tremendous upheaval. And you know, the way everybody comes out at the end is, is not the way that they went in at the beginning. Um, and it has one of the first instances of what, apparently, <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. not an expert. This is just what I read in the liner notes. Um, but what is apparently one of the first, quote unquote, off screen deaths of a major character in what sort of came to characterize modern European literature. It used to be that the sort of the rule for the death of a major character was that you would have, you know, a Shakespearean monologue before you actually croaked. You would come on stage and talk for 10 minutes while you had a dagger sticking out of your side. (laughs) Um, And that was the way that you killed off a main character. And in Vanity Fair, the death that is sort of the, the the motivating force of a lot of the rest of the action occurs off stage. You don't see it. It's described in the single very stark sentence and that's it. You go hmm. on to book two. It, it's extremely shocking. And apparently at the time people were just stunned. I mean, now we're used to it because we've all been through N seasons of game of Thrones, well, but yeah. at the time it was shocking and so, yeah, that is whenever I hit a rough patch, I reread Vanity Fair well, and think, you know, I, I, it's I, I, not I'm a 19th century friend. <laughs> no, but yeah. Thackeray, I, I, I've often thought, I mean, especially with the um, absolute and, and deserved renaissance of, of Jane Austen, that a lot of a lot of the social satire and the irony and a lot of the wit that was actually there before her with, with Fielding and, and with Thackeray. And Thackeray also wrote a great fairy tale called The Rose and the Ring. Uh, so unlike some of those period novelists, he wasn't antithetical to fantasy, even though Vanity no. Fair is about pretty close to realism as you can get, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he did some really interesting sort of, I mean, I don't know if I'd call it an experimental, but certainly, yeah, he, he was interested in pushing the boat out a little bit. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder almost if some of what he did was was in reaction to Dickens, <laughs> you know, sort of the the, mm-hmm. the classic Dickensian novel. Um, you know, like Dickens kind of likes a Shakespearean character arc. Oh, um, yeah. And, you know, whereas I think Thackeray comes right out and is like, this is a novel without heroes. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. he says it in the first chapter. So, yeah, I, I think... I think he did want to sort of push the envelope a little bit. Um, and uh, it is it is interesting, at least from a form perspective, what he comes up with. 
The third uh, question we always ask people is what have uh, what have you got uh, coming up in terms of comic books, novels, graphic novels? Um, what even if you're not getting work done, what are you supposed to be doing? <laughs> what am I supposed to be doing? Yeah, um, I'm very excited to be working on a new series set in the Sandman universe. Uh, you know, sort of the famous goth comic book series of the 80s and 90s, which I was super, super, super into as a very gothy teen, you oh, know, in white sure. makeup and all black and, uh, you know, the Victorian boots and so forth. Uh, so, you know, it was huge for me. And so to be able to come back to that universe and tell a new set of stories is just absolutely magical. So, uh, you know, the new the series that I'm working on with the amazing Nick Robles, who's the uh, artist is called The Dreaming Waking Hours, and the first issue comes out, oh gosh, August 7th? Am I doing that right? Wow. It's the first Wednesday of August. <laughs> it's either the 4th or the 7th. Um, but yeah, first issue comes out in August. Um, people can pre-order it now. That's great. Or, or queue it up in Comixology if you're a, you know somebody who likes to read on a device, and uh, it's just... It's just so much fun. <laughs> Is this something that's going to continue after this initial um, dreaming uh, comes out? Are you going to be doing more in the Sandman universe? Yeah, I mean, this is an ongoing series. So in theory, we'll keep going until the wheels fall off whenever right. that is. Well, yeah. somebody who grew up as if you were actually looking at the Sandman uh, back in the 80s, and I, I confess I caught up with it later. Um, and But I, it did occur to me that Unlike all the other fantasies, Sandman told you, showed you how to dress. In other words, you didn't have to imagine that there it was on the page. <laughs> and I always wondered if that was part of the appeal of, of, of graphic novels in that period uh, to begin with, is that uh, there, more than films even, they gave you all sorts of options for cosplay. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's huge. I, even today in... Any kind of comics, including superhero comics, I, I think the sartorial choices made in the books become a huge part of the culture surrounding them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and sometimes cosplayers will come up with iterations of these outfits or costumes that are more detailed and cooler than what uh -huh. was even in the original source material. Um, you know, and you know, for me, reading Sandman in the mid to late 90s. There was almost kind of an inception vibe because I was running around wearing onks and, you know, sort of death mm -hmm. makeup. And I didn't know why. I just know that was what you did as a goth. And then I get this book and I was like, oh, this is where it comes from. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I was doing the thing without even knowing where the thing came from. And so, you know, I was sort of a goth and then discovered Sandman. So it, it is really, really interesting to, to see how that sort of cultural game of telephone works uh -huh. with costuming. Um, and, yeah. And to be able to contribute to it yourself now must be just a Oh, my God. It, it really is. It's a complete trip. It feels like coming full circle and returning to my roots, <laughs> you know, on some level. Great. So, you know, I'm, I, we're trying to do it justice. I know that Nick is as excited about it as I am. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. Well, as usual, we've gone over the 10 minutes, but uh, but this has been fascinating. Again, uh, this is Gary Wolf with the Coot Street Podcast. I've been talking with G. Willow Wilson, and thank you so much for joining us, Willow.
Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.